I mean, he's been putting in work for so long. Putting a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting in Work, episode 76 of the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Collective, powered by Audio Technica. And thanks to everyone tuning in after joining us last week for the first time with the Roger Craig Smith interview. That went really well. So had a great response. So if you did enjoy that, I hope that you leave a rating and review in iTunes, help show, help get the word out there. And this week, we have a great guest for you. Again, it's Ben Sorensen, the marketing director for ZQ Racing, is also the host of Ben Sorensen's Real Country, one of the biggest country music radio programs Australia has ever had. It was syndicated in five countries over more than 100 different radio stations. So I had a good chance to talk to Ben about starting that radio program, watching it take off his work uh, as an MC and I guess somewhat of a performer on stage. He hosts a lot of events, especially with the ZQ racing chairs being very popular with the gaming community. For people who don't know, these racing chairs are also known as gaming chairs. Anyone that spends a lot of time sitting on their butt is going to need a good chair and these racing chairs seem to have become really popular in recent years. So there's a lot of events he goes to to promote those things, but he's also appearing at PAXs and RTXs and Supernovas, Comic Cons, all these kinds of things as a talent to host panels and to present and MC and announce. So yeah, Ben's a really sought after personality at those kinds of things. But we also had a really interesting conversation about his Asperger's syndrome, how that's been a hurdle for him, but also how he's been able to use it knowing about the way that it's made his brain unique and turning that into a strength in terms of his struggles with communication, becoming very interested in that and turning that weakness into something that he's now excelling at in many ways. At least professionally, at least from a marketing perspective, communication is the tool and he's doing a great job with that. So here is Ben Sorensen. Enjoy the show. Very good. Well, thank you for joining me, Ben. Hey, that is totally okay. I always love chatting and experiencing the world of podcasts. Yeah, that's great. I've got a lot of questions for you because we don't know each other very well. We've only met a couple of minutes ago. <laughs> but yep. from what I know about you, you've done a lot of different things and you've evolved, I guess is a good word for it. You've hit your final evolution in the form of the, the longest beard possible. Is that right? Yeah, well, the longest beard that I'm allowed to practically have, because any longer than that, you know, uh, I think it, it tends to, you know, be pointless when you have soup and things like that mm. to have a, um, like a, a, a napkin tucked in. It kind of covers sure. the shirt nicely, but... You need a permit. Yeah, you do. I, I absolutely think you do. Um, to whom great beard is granted, much is expected. Yeah. <laughs> but let's start off by, maybe let's talk about what you're doing at the moment, and then we'll talk about where you've come from, because it's kind of two vastly different things as far as what I know about you. Well, you know, I think a, a lot of people have that question. And I think it's really interesting. So it sounds like a lot and it looks like a lot, but for me, I call it full utilization of asset. So the mm. asset that I was gifted with was my brain and my entire life and everything I've done up to this point is simply feeding its hunger. And that means, you know, um, as, as we all know, education is moving from the known to the unknown and finding little bridging gaps along the way. And that's pretty much what I've done, except I've found a couple of different ways and a couple of different tools uh, to help me expand out into seemingly unrelated areas with a common link. Hmm. So what's that link? Well, I, I think for me, the link is storytelling. Sure. You know, and an inquisitive nature to work out 
how things work, why they work, and what the energy and intention behind it is. So there is um, a little disclaimer that I should put in now um, saying that I'm not exactly neurologically typical. I have uh, Asperger's, which is part of the autism spectrum uh, disorder thing, which means that any special area of interest that I choose enables me to get in that zone where I can obsess about it and learn heaps of things. I have a mind like a steel trap. So facts, useless facts normally, uh, just stick in there. And one of the most fascinating things and interesting things for me is talking to new people from different areas and extracting facts and information that I'll regurgitate later in relation to something else. That's really interesting that you bring that up. I guess we're going to take this into a new direction altogether now. But uh, I'm quite interested in this. the topic of, I guess, spectrum disorders is what they call it, right? Mm. Clinically speaking. Yeah, autism spectrum disorder, ISD. Yeah, sure. So with that unlocked part of your brain comes, I suppose, what some people describe as social difficulties. Is that something you've experienced and had to overcome or have you just been fortunate it hasn't affected you? No, there's actually been um, massive, massive, massive social difficulties. And you know what? There still is. It's taken me what, 20 years of work and effort and trying to actually go on that journey to understand who I am and how I tick in order for me to do that. And one of the things uh, I was diagnosed quite late, but it's still been with me my whole life. It just didn't have a name. And fortunately, I was what they call high functioning. So I was able to get out there and go, okay, well, I'm different to everyone else. How can I find hacks and how can I find different ways to alter my brain and my experience of the world so that I can appear normal, so I can fit in, so I can do all these social cues. Because what everyone else natively has inbuilt was not Mm. natively inbuilt for me. So that was part of the challenge. My special area of interest happened to be communication because I was lacking at it. Right. So it's almost like you've taken a weakness and turned it into a strength. Yep. So I did actually try and consciously find out what those weaknesses were. But thankfully, when you go to school, um, everyone else around you will point your weaknesses out for you, <laughs> yeah. which made it a little bit easier for me to uh, to notice, even with the lack of social skills. And how did that manifest for you? Was it not being in tune with people's emotions and that kind of thing? You know, I think um, it's about uh, having uh, an inability to recognize empathy and an in- inability to, and this is for me, of course, every, when they say when you've met one Aspie, you've met one Aspie. Um, <laughs> when, <laughs> an inability to accurately read faces and recognize right. people and all sorts of things like that. So when, when you look at uh, normal social situations, I'm pretty good at that now. I'm, I've, you know, arm, arm's length social stuff I'm okay with, but when you start to get closer or it gets uh, to be an acute emotional situation or something that's a bit more intense or deeper, you know, I, st- I still have trouble reading those nuances because a lot mm. of times as a neurologically typical person, uh, if they get upset or there is an acute moment, their words may not match their face, which may not match their feeling behind it. And that's when a lot of confusion comes because my main uh, my default mode is to listen to the words and to work sure. off that as opposed to um, a normal person, in inverted commas, uh, yeah. <laughs> would, would, would see all three of those things and take all of them into account equally. Sure. It's a, a little more robotic 
for lack of a better term. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. It's more uh, process driven as opposed to intuitive. Sure. So it's it's remembering. Hmm. Very interesting. That's good context to have, I guess, as we talk about what you've achieved up to this point. So let's let's get back into that. So at the moment, your profession, you're like the voice or the the head of uh, ZQ Racing Chairs. Is that the the yep. most common workload? You do a lot of things. Do you know that- what? I have two main strands to my world, and I find that any time in my life that I've only had one one job or one thing uh, that I do. I tend to go a little bit stale. I need the stimulation of multiple things in mm. order to keep everything fresh and alive and interesting for me. So uh, currently I'm um, marketing director uh, for ZQ Racing, uh, which is also part of my, it uh, comes under the banner of my consulting company. So I do uh, special projects as far as marketing strategy goes uh, for different clients uh, all over the place. Um, and then the other side is, uh, away from marketing, is the uh, MC work, the voiceovers, um, the TP and radio and all of that stuff. And I see mm. the two are oddly kind of related uh, and a lot of the skills are actually interchangeable. How does that work? So it's speaking, it's so, presenting ideas and communicating. Yeah, absolutely. So a, a lot of it is working out ways to communicate a message. When we look at marketing and marketing uh, marketing strategy, what we're talking about is what is the bank of information that I need to impart to a, a, a interested or slightly less than interested target market to engage mm. them and fill them with knowledge so that the sales team can come in and go, hey, I can solve that problem for you or, hey, that thing you want, yeah, here it is. So part of it is that, and one of the great challenges and, and um, joys that I have with marketing strategy is communicating complex messages with a basis, well, I like to think of basis of good values uh, to an audience honestly, so that then they make an educated decision with all the information about your product, whatever that may be. And that's a lot harder than it. I'm, I'm creating a lot more work for myself than I need to because within the marketing industry, um, there's a lot of those ethics and frameworks aren't as front of mind as they probably should be in a lot of cases. But uh, I, I like the challenge and I also like data as well. So I like taking data and crunching and seeing how these strategies work. So there's con- that constant feedback to you know, evolve and change, just like a, a target market mm. will, uh, just like customer base, just like anybody else in this world will. So evolution is such an important thing to watch and admire over time. Yeah. And like speaking of that evolution, as I was kind of doing a bit of research into you and your background, looking at some sizzle reels of work <laughs> you've done before... <laughs> It was almost like, is this the same guy? Have I yeah. got the wrong Ben Sorensen? Because- Do you know what? They, they were sizzle reels at the time. Now they're a bit lukewarm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lukewarm reels. Yeah. 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 Room some temperature. Of pre- some of them are pretty cold. I remember a Super Bowl <laughs> thing that I did that was way, that's like dry ice. That's how yeah. cold that is. But, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I guess the the, the, the evol- oh, sorry, I was going to say like the evolutionary side of it is not only was it visually a completely different work that you were doing in country music, like as a radio presenter, 
but you you know you looked a lot different you the beard was a lot more trimmed back it was a lot more kind of refined and i guess more what you'd expect from someone that hosts a country music program so can you tell me about how you got into that work yep guessing that starts with a strong interest in country music well do you know what you know it actually didn't it actually started from uh a relationship that I had with a hmm. um, really amazing human woman. And um, she was a country singer and she wanted to do all of the... In country music, unlike a lot of other music genres, there's a uh, a range of competitions that you can do at country music clubs to win awards and, and you know, become you know, Queensland Entertainer of the Year and then National Entertainer Hmm. of the Year and all that sort of stuff. So there's a a whole world of competitions that you're able to cut your teeth on to give you a lot of experience and to uh, meet a lot of people as you're rising through the ranks as a country music artist. Sounds a bit like tennis or something. (laughs) Yeah, kind of, except less balls and no rackets (laughs) uh, in both senses of the word. Um, (laughs) And then I, I went along to all of these and... You know, I met some really great people and, you know, you'd hear about, oh, what are they listening to? What are they doing? And part of that was me wanting to uh, support her through that journey and support her through all of that. Not not in the sense of actually playing playing a music, but more so support the industry that I had such a, a warm and grassroots mm. introduction to. Um, I then got a, um, fortuitously got a job doing uh, breakfast radio on the Sunshine Coast, which I loved. I had some wonderful, wonderful experiences there. And from there, Real Country kind of grew. And it was just a, a simple little one-hour segment filled with 80% Australian country music, which at the time wasn't getting much of an airing on commercial stations. And 20% of the um, the American stuff so that you know we had a bit of a hook to get people to listen <laughs> but um uh, through that through that journey i ended up doing that for about 10 years and we actually grew that from one station to two to three to four up to at its peak 140 stations in five countries and it was a wonderful showcase and it wasn't re- it wasn't about me it wasn't about anything other than um this is what radio was originally built for it mm. was a discovery tool. It wasn't to tell you what to listen to. It wasn't to do uh, anything other than expose you to a really wide gauntlet of high-quality music that had been uh, filtered out and curated for you so that you could go, hey, I've never heard of that artist, but I really love that song. I, I'm going to go online and I'm going to check them out. Or, you know what, I really want to hear that again, so I'm going to ask for a request so you can play it again in your request segment. So it was about giving a platform to Australia, a niche music genre within Australia. It was about giving them a platform so that they could, you know, be recognised for some of the great work and, you know, expose that work to a audience that may not traditionally know that they like country. Because there seems to be, or at the time, there was that stigma about, oh, it's country music. But what I did through Real Country was actually show people that, um, sure, there is a lot of really, really bad country. But there's also <laughs> a lot of really, really good country, too. Yeah. And it's the same as pop or rock or death metal or, you know, whatever. Any genre, you'll find there's a, a wide range of good and bad. And um, in particular, we look at country uh, and its evolution, the conversation that keeps coming up is 
what exactly is country? What does country music mean? And, um, you know, that's a constant battle that everyone has. But I see it as a wonderful conversation. And um, again, uh, using real country as the example, it's we actually had that conversation on air, played examples. And, um, you know, got to interview some amazing artists to shed so much light onto that genre. And uh, I'd like to think in a small way, uh, we did our bit to uh, help some of our great uh, mm. great Australian music industry to grow. Well, that's really cool. I'm guessing that you did get into country music quite heavily by, by that point. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And it's hard not to once you interview all these people. And even now... Uh, that real country's on a bit of a permanent holiday, but even now I still have touring artists that come to town and go, "Hey Ben, come see the show," and you know, come to come cool. hang out and stuff like that. And it's so amazing and heartwarming that, particularly when you're in media, as you know, that even when uh, you're not massively useful to someone's career, that they will still contact you and they will still talk to you. And mm. I have not found that in any other area of music other than country so far. Um, there's some genuine, real friendships that are made, and it's really heartwarming and really wonderful. That's Very cool. blessed. Yeah. So how did you end up into radio to begin with? Because you kind of mentioned you were doing breakfast radio, and that was the segue into the country program. But how did you yeah. get started in radio to start with? Well, um, I actually didn't start in in radio. I actually started um, singing and dancing, doing vaudeville shows and everything like that. I mean, I, I, mm. I used to sing with the Queensland Youth Choir through all of their uh, their choirs there. And from there, I ended up doing, you know, a couple of interesting things. Like in 97, when uh, Michael Edgley's Aida came to town, I was singing, you know, second bass in the chorus of the priests there at ANZ Stadium, freezing with no clothes on. <laughs> And, you know, I did um, uh, vaudeville shows and variety shows and all sorts of stuff like that and theatre restaurants. And then I realised that um, that's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I, I seem to have been able to make people laugh or make people think. And I realised that there was a lot of power and a lot of energy in refining that to help people you know, to experience a different point of view or to think differently or to, you know, laugh at something that also prompts thought. Um, mm. So I spent some time refining that and working that out to see how I could do that. And as a kid growing up in, you know, Brisbane, at the time it was, there were limited opportunities and we didn't have like a, I mean, I'm only what, 35 now, but even back then when I was like 15 or 16, you know, we didn't have all the technology that we had now. I mean, technology's moved forward very, very quickly, and so has the entertainment industry uh, and content creation. It's moved forward in huge, huge leaps and bounds. Um, so, you know, part of it was working out and finding that way. So I ended up emceeing a lot of events um, and, you know, building a solid reputation with people for, you know, doing a lot of observational stuff. And part of that came because that was my personal journey to learn how to socialize with other people. And I did that on stage in front of everyone because uh, my inaccuracies were funny. People thought they were funny. My errors became jokes. And as they laughed, I learned. Oh, that's really interesting. And I guess it didn't scare you away. 
Well, that well, you know, I have this. Uh, that's also partly how I'm wired. I don't get stage fright or anything like that. I just go up and I do my thing, and it's always been that way because um, with a uh, that's actually uh, for me one of the good things is if you have an inability to read faces, you don't really know if they're upset with you or not. <laughs> <laughs> the perks. Yeah. Uh, well, there's got to be an upside somewhere. Yeah. So you mentioned, I guess, what the the radio program consisted oh. of. How did it get to the point? Sorry, I got stuck on a bit there. So uh, from there, I actually um, <laughs> ended up doing a couple of shows for Channel Nine, uh, doing oh, yeah. the Channel Nine Carols in the Park. I was I, I did some. Uh, character hosting for them and then it was one of the producers of that that said would you like to come and do some tv so i ended up doing um uh, a couple of kids tv series for uh channel nine doing voiceovers and and crowd warm-up and some other bits and pieces around the building uh and then from there i moved into radio and you know still doing a lot of corporate comms and some uh some tv and video work as well and it all sort of snowballed from there i think it's um, once you have that relationship and you have a particular knack for content and producing quality work and find things that match who and how you are, um, mm. you know, I think it, it tends to tends to grow like that. But patience is the key. Yeah, that is really interesting. I, I was just talking to some friends the other day about some of the, you know, huge TV personalities we've had in Australia, like your, your game show hosts, mm. you know, your Tony Barbers and... Burjos and and what have you, and I was thinking, how are these people going to be discovered in the future? They're going to, just going to be pulled out of straight from YouTube or something because that's what people are, are doing. They're not probably pursuing the traditional avenues of being discovered. So no. it's it's interesting to think about that. I think yeah, absolutely the way that you got there. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that um, when you say got there, I think that's an interesting term because it's relative. Uh, like for me, I think I don't see myself as being there yet. I see myself as still <laughs> on the journey. And when you swap levels within life, you trade one set of problems for another as you progress up this mythical ladder. You're always trying to get to the next rung, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And on Tony Barber there, I think that's interesting. We're actually friends on Facebook and <laughs> and he's discovered facebook and um oh, he's nice. of a he's of a particular vintage and still such an incredibly talented man uh, it, it's almost like when you're when your grandma or grandpa gets on on the internet and they post about things that they probably shouldn't <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great that's but great. i tony I, I absolutely love him to bits Nice. You'll give me his, his personal contact number so I can get him on this podcast if, and he can like try and figure out how to hit record on the microphone. <laughs> yeah, he'd probably get you to come here and do it for him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so you mentioned what the radio program consisted of before and I guess the format, but what was it do you think that made it such a success? Because before we started recording, you were talking about you know how it went number one in all these different locations, and it was, I guess, being syndicated, and that's a pretty exciting thing for someone in that position, isn't it? Well, you know, it it is. It sounds a lot more exciting than it, than it really was. <laughs> like when I when I look back, I just go, I remember being drained and tired all the time. And funny thing about producing your own content, uh, again, you'd be acutely aware of this, is. Um, the fun bit is only about two seconds of the hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of work that you've got to put in <laughs> to make it all happen. And I started a different arm of my business uh, to just do syndicating. So what we did was I exclusively built a business and a list with the help of some other people in the beginning. 
to syndicate this program and it was you know very challenging and there's a lot of people out there that produce the same sort of content on their own and I seriously don't know how they did it I had uh, an absolutely amazing um, editor and friend that I found that would help me piece it together uh, even though I always got him content late and always changed it at the last minute and he he was very kind and he would do it at a a, a very uh, reasonable rate that was uh, a, a below market rate because he believed in the content and you know that the easy thing is when we look at television versus you know podcasting or versus the internet or anything like that it's really challenging in the early days to find enough of the financial resources to move it sustainably to the next level and the next level after that so uh, i mean a podcast is easy to create create if you can uh, buy a studio or rent a studio, get an engineer in, edit it together, and then have a marketing team and a PR team and all of these other things. But um, the reality is that the return on that investment is uh, not always there until we start to get bigger and bigger and bigger numbers. So that was a real and very big challenge for me with uh, Real Country, even though I still get mail about it today and I still get calls and when I and I still host country festivals on the back of that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Brings me to my next question. You've diversified into a completely different area, and that's the racing chairs. It seems like a different space altogether. <laughs> it seems like, you know, when I first heard of you and working in this space, that you were someone that was very much in, I guess, the nerd culture community. And that's probably where people know you from, conventions like yeah. Supernova that I went to recently, Comic-Con and PAX and RTX and all these things. But, you know, that's so far away from country music that was that a deliberate shift for you to go there or did it just kind of happen subtly, kind of naturally, just made sense? I find it really interesting. And if you had to say to me 10 years ago, you'll be selling chairs or marketing director for a chair company and people will, you know, associate your brand with, you know, really good quality Australian-owned racing chairs, I'd go, mm, you know, what's in... <laughs> What sort of mushroom sauce are you having? Um, but, you know, it's an opportunity that came up and it was all about, um, again, as I said in the early days, uh, full utilisation of asset. It was a challenge. And do you know what? To start with, I wasn't really passionate about chairs. I didn't even know about chairs. Furniture didn't really, you know, float my boat at all. But There's not many people who are passionate about chairs, is there? No. Do you know what? No, there isn't. But for me... <laughs> um, I went, all right, if I'm going to do this, let's do it properly. And I do love a challenge. Every seven years or so, I tend to do something I don't think I can do. Um, and there's a long history of me doing crazy things every seven years to teach me a new skill or to teach me something that I thought impossible. Um, mm. And chairs happened to be this round. And, you know, at the more I looked at it and the more I thought about it, the more I went... Do you know what? Chairs are really important. It's like when you go to a concert. Um, you don't notice the sound guy sitting there and you don't notice any of that. The only time you notice it is if something goes wrong. And other than that, it's invisible. You know, and I think that that's where the magic of chairs come in. You don't notice it. You don't think about it. You don't care about it until it goes wrong and it's bad. And you don't know about what's good and what's bad until you've had a bad experience. So part of the whole chair concept was to actually try to design an aesthetically pleasing chair that was solid, that was good, that was Australian-owned and met the needs of the market. So I've spent the last two years doing 
all of the cons and pop culture events and hosting heaps of shows and meeting a heap of people and um, doing some really extraordinary and very cool things by my standards. Um, but most of all, it's been to meet the people that purchase these chairs and to ask them, what are your needs? What do you do? And then going back and taking that short list of needs and wants and experiences and how they use the chairs and actually proactively designing something that enables them to do what they love doing, which is gaming or sitting in front of a screen or doing you know, all of that sort of stuff and making it last. So that's been incredibly rewarding. And it's for me, it's learning a different side of an industry that I love, uh, which is pop culture and gaming and esports um and also you know as boring as it sounds office furniture as well you know <laughs> we sell we, we we place chairs in a lot of a lot of businesses and um i like to think that we've made um uh, the zq racing team has made a big difference to the postural health of you know a lot of really motivated australians that work hard that play hard and um you know do all that sort of stuff that is cool I'd, i mean i'd love a racing chair at work i'd love one at home too but i mean like oh now i see why I you can, asked me just... on the show yeah so yeah. <laughs> uh, let's let's talk about sponsorship <laughs> um oh it's interesting i think you mentioned getting to know these people were you very much interested in all these you know anime and pop culture and things like that yourself is it something that you've kind of learnt a lot more about since you were meeting all these people. Do you know what? I've been I think I think it's a natural gravitation uh for some people to like uh pop culture, which oddly is a niche considering it's short shortened popular culture. And also to, you know, find a connection with a lot of these shows. And I I, I think uh for me I've always enjoyed Doctor Who and hmm. you know, I never really thought of myself as someone who would ever go to a con or to do anything like that. I just really enjoy the show and I like the stories and I like being able to switch off. Um, but also, you know, to think a little bit and, um, you know, the Marvel movies that have come out now, DC movies, uh, Lord of the Rings, all that sort of stuff. I had a, a great connection with it and I really do enjoy that sort of stuff. And when I discovered that there was a place that I could go where, you know, there was a whole heap of like-minded people and they'd dress up in cosplay and, you know, there'd be um, a lot of really clever artists that would do some great art and also some great products and all these wonderful experiences and activations and all sorts of stuff that happens at these cons. Um, that blew my little mind. Because mm. um, you see, um, like, San Diego Comic-Con and all the big ones over in the States, but you didn't... I never thought that there'd be something like that in Australia, but it is. And, you know, whether you're into that or not, it's definitely an experience that you should go to. You should check it out and you should throw yourself in wholeheartedly because it is absolutely wondrous. And, you know, the gaming chairs and, and the relationships and friendships that you make, you know, it just all moves out from there. It's like working from the known to the unknown, as I mentioned before. And, you know, once those interests and relationships are aligned, um, you'd be surprised what you can achieve. Hmm. That's been my experience as well, I think, just by going to these things and meeting people and just seeing that having something in common can be the, the spark that ignites a friendship is really cool. Yeah. But, I mean, talking to them about chairs, I mean, I had a, a wonderful moment where I, I was fortunate enough to uh, host an interview with Summer Glau from Firefly. 
Um, and she's, she's lovely. She is absolutely delightful. And we happened to have some ZQ racing chairs on stage. And it was that moment that I went after two years of traveling around and meeting everyone. There are, there are some things that, um, that I've done one-on-one with people that, um, on the on the on the show stand or at other places that that they remember and Summer had no idea about what that is so she ended up sitting on the chair and going oh wow this is great it's really really comfortable it kind of reminds me of a dentist's chair and then I went hold that thought Summer how much do you trust me and it was at that moment that everybody in the room all two or three hundred people in the room went oh she doesn't know what he's going to do now but we do and that was a really wonderful moment to, to for me to go, um, not only was that impressive for me, but it was also a wonderful way for me to go, okay, well, we've connected with these people and they understand the product and they have a vested interest in it and they're aware of it. And I think that's that's really special. And we've, uh, ZQ Racing is very, very humbled uh, by mm. the support of Australians for an Australian-owned uh, chair brand. And incidentally, if you haven't seen me at a con, uh, or you haven't experienced one of the chairs, what I normally do is um, uh, lay them back. So um, all our chairs are, are perfectly balanced. Right. So you can actually lay there quite comfortably, virtually with your head on the ground, uh, and you'll still be safe, secure, and very balanced. So that's what we did with Summer on stage. There's some yeah. photos on my Instagram. <laughs> that sounds great. So when you were kind of starting out with the chair, what was it that you were able to do to separate yourself from competition you mentioned the australian owned thing so i'm guessing that's part of it but how did you just get get noticed and get people to pay attention to this newcomer this new brand that's trying to get its name out there well i think quality was a big big deal so if we look at the chair i did um well we all did at zq racing a lot of research into the chair market within australia and what we did find is that there was no ma- actual manufacturers directly being represented here in australia so every other chair that you get in Australia that you can buy is is a separate company that has purchased the rights to sell that brand stock within Australia or the bounds of Australia and New Zealand, whereas we actually are the manufacturers. So there's a few different things that I was able to do. And also, I'm really passionate about the environment. And one of the other things I noticed through all of this was, was um, the environmental, the lack of environmentally friendly chairs. Now, it's impossible to make a chair that's environmentally friendly and works and is good and does everything that we need. But, you know, I'm working on it. So what I was able to do was massage around the edges and go, well, what can I change? How can I make that difference? And how can I create a win-win-win situation, which is so important? So when I looked through, you know, the market and how everyone had just bought the rights and they were selling chairs, what I did notice was they had no control over the design of the chairs. All The only bargaining tool they had was price. That was it. Um, and, you know, maybe the odd, the odd piece of merch here and there. So what we were able to do was come in and go, hey, do you know what? We have a great range of chairs. And we take the feedback. And the next time we get those chairs in, it's changed. It's different. It's better. So we have different generations of chairs. Same model, just different generations. The second we find a better way to do it, we do it. Right, um, And I think that's an amazing thing. Also being Australian owned as well. And the fact that uh, because we control the build quality of our chairs, we can offer a two-year warranty on absolutely everything because we know how we built them from start to finish. Uh, mm-hmm. We also have a lifetime structural guarantee because we spend extra money and time 
in welding a steel frame together inside the chairs. And it's all little stuff. And aesthetically, when you look at our chairs versus a lot of others, you don't really see too many differences. But just like people, it's what's on the inside that counts. So that's... Oh, that's a great tagline. So that's so that's how, that's how we try to um, separate ourselves from the market. Um, and the other thing, just with the environmental stuff, what I did, what I really hate is when your chair breaks. Uh, it wouldn't be a ZQ chair, but it would be another chair. Uh, <laughs> let's say your inferior chair breaks. Um, what are they going to tell you to do? They're going to say, "Okay, well, put it in landfill and buy a new chair." Great, problem solved. Um, I don't want ZQ chairs to end up in landfill ever if I can help it. So being the manufacturer, one of the big changes for us was we'll sell you parts. Outside of the warranty period, we will sell you parts for your chair to extend its life so that it does not end up in landfill a second earlier than it needs to. So hmm. that was the really huge thing for us. And also um, my middle ground until I can work out how to make an environmentally friendly chair. Sure. So tell me what's been the hardest part of getting to where you are. And you can tackle that from either building a reputation for being this gun for hire in whatever you sense people want to work with you. Or you can talk about, I guess, coming from where you have been and overcoming the Asperger's. I think the, the hardest thing for me being great and being patient. And I think they were the hardest things because I'm a very do it now sort of person. Yep, we've got the resources. Yes, yes, we can. Boom, let's do it. Oh, I can't because of politics, because I don't have the right relationships, because I don't whatever. Mm. So that's been, that patience has been such a challenge for me. Um, and also understanding the value and importance of network and relationships. Now, not, uh, this is where the Asperger's ties in, not being as... Uh, relationship orientated a lot of what I did was very uh, end result orientated which is good that's important but sometimes it's those relationships that you build and um, the people that you allow into your world that facilitate uh, those connections to enable you to do the awesome things if I hadn't known that 20 years ago I'd be in a very different position now um, so yes that's that's very challenging and um, I think one of the other really challenging things too is uh, that I've found is the reality of the numbers and going, yes, I'm passionate about it. Yes, I love this. Yes, I want to do it. But the numbers just don't work out. It's not a good idea. And having the uh, the skill and foresight to see um, when something you love is just not going to work out. Mm. And that's a good segue into the next question. What would be your advice to anyone that wants to do some of the, the work that you've been able to do, whether it's uh, overcoming their own shortcomings or whether it's, like I said, developing a reputation as someone that can be trusted to MC an event or to you know, m successfully market a product and be the, the mouthpiece for that? I think the, um, the, there's a few things there. Number one, and this is my pet hate, don't copy anybody. If it's already been done or you think someone else is successful doing that, don't copy it. Don't do it. There's already somebody doing it. So one of the big things for me was not competing on the same platform that everyone else is. So sure, there might be 10 MCs, but one of them has a particular style or a particular um, way of doing things that might suit the content better. And if you're not selected for a gig, and someone else who is suited better to it is with a skill set you don't have, then you can't really feel too bad about it. Hmm. 
you know, and that makes, um, and that's such an important thing. Don't try and be something you're not. Just work out and do that work and learn who you are and work out what comes naturally to you and then accentuate that. Because if you do it full-time or you do lots and lots and lots of stuff, it is so energy-consuming and time-consuming and unsustainable for you to be something you're not. So, And that also works in with uh, my journey with Asperger's. So um, if there are challenges in your world, the, it all comes back to working out who you are. Hmm. And for me, that's an ongoing journey for me, as it is for most of us, to work out who we are. But once we work out who we are, and you know what we want to do, how we want to do it, then your performances, be that in the work arena, be that as an MC, be that um, interpersonally with people, your relationships, your interactions all become more genuine because you come from that base of, hey, I know who I am and what I'm doing. So that that is the single best thing that anyone can do. Don't copy anyone else, just be you. Fantastic. That's great. Yeah. I think that you've hit it there because that's the one thing you can do better than anyone else is, is be yourself. Absolutely. And it's infinitely sustainable because you don't have to pretend. Yeah. <laughs> and you will also, um, once you discover who you are, find an amazing, magical skill set that you know not many people in this world will have. You'll have find a passion for something and a knack for doing something really well. And, you know, that's your thing. The goal is to go and find it. Like, if you look at singers, singers have got a thing that they do. There's a, you know, there's one one thing that sets them apart, something that makes them unique, whether it's, you know, tone or vibrato or, or you know, um, a particular vocal style that they have. There's something that makes them unique. And it's true of all of us in all walks of life. It's about finding your uniqueness, finding your magic, whatever that is. Cool. And the last question, Ben, before I let you go, if you could do anything and know that you would not fail, what would you do? Oh, wow. What a question. I would... Actually, do you know what I would do? I would embark on a journey in this messed up society, which is my favorite line. Who wants to be normal in a messed up society? Um, I would embark on a journey not to uh, tell people what to think, but to educate them how to think so that people can come up with their own decisions uh, independent of the propaganda that a lot of marketing and uh, government and, and people out there tend to tend to push. Because I think if we have some solid um, decision-making systems and tools uh, and understanding the difference between primary and secondary information and what's real and what isn't, I think that mm. we would each each and every one of us would be able to make better, more educated decisions. Now, even if that decision from my values is wrong, it I, I would be okay with that as long as it's made with solid information. So if I couldn't fail at anything in the world, I would walk out into the world and, and encourage people and teach people the art of thinking and good decision-making based on solid information so that everyone could <laughs> empower their own lives. Fantastic. I guess, uh, what would you say is stopping you? It's just impossible. <laughs> Time and energy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think um, some of the, if you if you look through some of the, um, uh, or like if you're at 
Supernova or any of the cons that I that I host at, um, please come and see me at one of the do one of the interviews. Um, I think what I like to do is prompt thought through interesting questions and prompt thought bit by bit in uh, consumable pieces through all the work I do. And I, I mean, I would do that more aggressively if I knew I couldn't fail and people would receive it well. But, mm. um, you know, I think that's that's just something. And I think as a society, we should move towards less propaganda, more real information and uh, less ego. And part of that is all through good decision making and the tools to yeah. do that. Not saying that I'm perfect and I do it right, but everyone needs a goal in life. That's it. Can't argue with that. Thank you so much for coming on here, Ben. It's uh, It's been great and you've been very open and honest and I think that's made for some really interesting uh, conversation. Thank you so much for the chat and the opportunity. I just absolutely adore this series. Oh, thanks, Ben. Thank you for listening and thanks to Audio Technica. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenSorensen1. If you enjoyed the show, please leave an iTunes review and rating. It really helps people discover the show. And if you really enjoyed it, you can pick up some sweet putting in work merchandise over at designbyhumans.com slash shop slash putting in work. And why not head over to 8bit.net for more of the awesome podcast content from the 8bit collective. That's A-T-E-B-I-T. If you want to get in touch, you can send an email to Jono at 8bit.net or hit me up on Twitter at Jono himself. And until next week, keep putting in work.